This is Spain, 1959-1992, uh, democracy after dictatorship. There are two sets of handouts, but I think some of you only have one. I'll get the other one sent to you. The other one is probably the um, syllabus for the whole lecture series. The one you all, I hope you all have, is the outline for today's lecture. Um, first, I, a disclaimer. Um, I would probably be um, particularly comfortable with um, a stage, a staging a play uh, by Cervantes or Lope de Vega, um, but I'm not following their script, which would probably be easier, um, but I do hope I'm up to par, because this is um, the only... Hello. Sorry. Anyway, do you want to take one? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, this is the only paper on Spain's history and politics offered at Oxford. So I'm experimenting with recording these lectures for podcasting. So if you have a particularly, um, uh, well, if, if, you're, if you're particularly, like, if you're coughing or if you have a cold and you want copyright, let me know after the lesson's over. Um, so these five lecture series will cover the last decade and a half of the Franco dictatorship in Spain, um, as well as... Spain's transition to democracy and um, re-emergence into the Western international system and its political and socio-economic modernization. So basically we go from um, the late 50s all the way up to the um, end of the Cold War. So, but, but before we start off, I'd like a quick show of hands, if you don't mind. Um, who here is in um, Spanish or modern languages? Um, what about history? Who is in history? Um, what about politics? Okay, thank you. Uh, the reason why I ask is because um, this lecture series is designed to cater for history, politics, and Spanish. So it's very interdisciplinary, both in its scope as well as in methods. I'll follow the same structure um, for each of the five sessions. So first, I'll take you through a couple or three sets, um, a set of questions laid out in the syllabus. Um, and uh, then we'll dive into the, into the fascinating world of historical research methods applied to politics. And um, finally, we'll go into um, key literary texts of the time. Um, the idea, um, the aim with that is to give you a sense of um, how context and text relate to each other and how we can better understand um, text knowing what the context was uh, when these uh, literary texts were written. Um, so today I will start off by, um, yeah, that works, um, by looking at today's two main themes, which are development and dissent in the last uh, decade and a half of the Franco regime in Spain. So um, what I mean by development is economic development and dissent is political dissent against the regime. Um, then I'll turn to discuss Juan Marcés' 1966 novel, Últimas Tardes con Teresa, so that could loosely be translated as Last Afternoons with Teresa. And finally, I'd like to share with you a few thoughts on um, the meeting minutes from General Franco and President Ford, U.S. President Ford's um, meeting in 1975, so that's the year Franco died. To set us in context, in 1874, 
um, there's a parliamentary monarchy is, um, established in Spain. Um, then uh, there's, in 1923, there's a military coup, a bloodless um, military coup against um, the, well, within the parliament, um, the, the monarchy setting. Um, and uh, so this really speaks to the tradition of military uprisings in Spain because there, there were around 50 um, over the course of the 19th and the 20th centuries. So um, once uh, the 1923 Primo de Rivera dictatorship um, came down, um, that was replaced by a, the Second Spanish Republic. So that was Spain's first attempt at a democracy, um, but it was um, uh, it promised lots of socio-economic um, uh, ideas and that it couldn't really deliver and um, there was lots of ideological polarisation as well as um, massive political cabinet instability. Um, but, but the Second Republic did not fall um, out of its own accord. Um, there was a military uprising led by General Franco against the Second Republic. Um, so this led, it was, military uprising was um, not fully successful. Had it, had it been fully successful, there would not have been a civil war in Spain. So, and that's what happened for three years. There was a bloody civil war um, and um, casualties around four, four, 400,000, yes. <laughs> so that's to give you the setting that really leads us up to the Franco regime. So after the, uh, the three-year civil war, um, there's a totalitarian um, system set up in Spain. Now, um, Raymond Carr, who was, uh, who was the leading historian on modern Spain and who was warden at St. Anthony's here in Oxford for 20 years, he um, wrote that Francoism was not a totalitarian regime. It was a conservative, Catholic profoundly anti-communist authoritarian system. Um, its original corporatist features modified over time. José Maraval, who was an Oxford-trained sociologist and scholar, and he then later became um, Spain's first socialist minister for education in the 1980s, um, he uh, suggested that it is precisely the difficulty of fitting Francoism within this conception of totalitarianism that um, we come up with another typological cell, and that's authoritarianism. And Juan Lintz, who, um, is best, who is um, a Yale scholar um, uh, in politics and sociology, and who is best known for his theories of totalitarian and authoritarian systems, um, he suggested that the evolution of the Franco regime from 1945 um, there was, there was an evolution from totalitarianism to authoritarianism. Um, so during the, se the Second World War, however, um, Franco is associated to the Axis powers. And it is precisely this association to the Axis powers and um, the fact that it is a dictatorship um, that uh, does not allow Spain to join the United Nations when it's founded 70 years ago to this year. And it does not allow, it does not give martial aid to Spain. So Spain is actually the only Western European country not to receive martial aid after World War II. 
Um, so I, this brings me to this, which I hope you can see, but it's, it's a movie. It's a 1953 um, movie, um, Welcome Mr. Marshall. And the reason I um, bring this up is because um, this movie depicts... Hello. Um, this movie, um, this Berlanga uh, film, um, shows... Um, it's set in a Castilian village, um, and all the villagers decide to dress up, dress up as Andalusians because they think that's really that has a lot of appeal. And um, and the reason they do this is because they want to welcome Mr. Marshall. However, by the end of the movie, we see a Mr. Marshall, who is the Secretary of State, uh, the U.S. Secretary of State, who brings the Marshall aid with him. He drives past the village, so there is no welcome party. There is no aid um, to Spain. It's particularly ironic that the movie was released in 1953 because that's the year when Spain and the US sign a military pact. And this is when Spain starts to uh, be um, sort of internationally diplom and diplomatically accepted, um, or at least the diplomatic ban on Spain is slightly lifted uh, because of this um, US-Spain um, military agreement. So the military agreement, uh, the 1953 agreement, um, is based on the idea of bases for cash. So the US can build four military uh, bases in Spain and it can deploy troops and Spain will get cash and um, some sort of international recognition. Also in 1953, there's a, um, Spain signs the Concordat with the Vatican. So that also gives um, Spain some sort of diplomatic um, legitimacy. Um, and because, because of this, then in 1955, Spain um, is allowed into the United Nations, along with 15 other countries, many of which were Soviet satellites. Because in 1955, the Warsaw Pact um, is, is founded. So this sort of brings us up to 1959, um, and we need to bear in mind not only this um, sort of diplomatic uh, ban that's lifted on Spain, but also the Cold War setting and uh, the, the fact that Spain is economically bankrupt. Um, and so a new power group comes into government. There's a cabinet reshuffle in 1957, and uh, um, a Catholic conservative lay group called the Opus Dei come into government. And they're a group of technocrats. They're very well trained, and mostly they're mostly economists, and they um, they work hard to get Spain into the West's post World War II international financial institutions, such as at the Inter International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, uh, and the Organization for European Economic Cooperation, which was founded uh, initially to channel U.S. martial aid to Europe. So in 1959, with this new cabinet, um, they announced Spain's sta stabilization plan. And the, the plan's goal was to counter um, years of Franco's economic policy, which was autarky, and that meant self-sufficiency. So we um, uh, will uh, build or manufacture um, products regardless of the fact that 
um, it might be cheaper to get them from abroad. Um, and there's a rampant state interventionism, there's economic isolation, and there's an emergence of a, a black market in Spain, pre-stabilization plan years. Um, so the stabilization plan uh, devaluated the national currency, it cut down on imports, it gave financial help to increase exports, it reduced public expenditure, and it froze wages and salaries. And this particular point about frozen wages and salaries, then um, we'll go back to that. Um, the plan encouraged foreign investment, um, and in fact, it brought in roughly $8 billion worth of foreign um, direct investment. Um, over the next decade and a half, Spain experienced an unprecedented economic growth, um, averaging 7.3, which was the highest in the Western world, um, second only to Japan. Um, and there was growth in uh, its gross domestic product, and, per, and the GDP raised from... 300 to $3,000, so that's 10 times um, the initial GDP. So Spain's economic boom um, was referred to as the Spanish miracle. And there was lots of industrialization, mainly in old industrial areas in the Basque Country, in Galicia's northern coast, um, as well as in, in and around Barcelona. And as a result, there was mass migration from rural areas to urban areas. And between, um, in fact, between 1950 and 1975, the share of the labor force um, engaged in agriculture declined from 48% to 22%. So that goes from half of the population to only around 20%. Um, however, those employed in industry and the service sector rose to 38% and 40%. These changes produced um, a growth in the mid, an expansion of the middle class, which went from 14 to 43%. And also, Spain's illiteracy rates dropped massively. For the stabilization plan's first year, however, there was a drop in real income and a rise in unemployment because of this freezing wages. Um, and salaries, um, which led uh, many Spaniards to migrate to other Western European countries, mainly Germany, um, with half a million migrants, France, a quarter of a million, Switzerland and Belgium. Emigre um, remittances from abroad supplied funds for much-needed capital goods at home. Also in the 1960s, Spain became the playground of Europe. Um, there were lots of tourists who went to Spain, and Spain is different um, was the tourist slogan. Now, Carr, the scholar, um, questions just how much, um, how very different Spain was in economic terms and in social terms by the 1960s and 70s. Um, and another scholar, Charles Powell, writes, in spite of its conservatism, the regime proved compatible with significant social and economic change. So I just wanted to show you um, two slides. I don't know whether you can see them too well, but these are patterns of industrialization. And you can see how in blue, or hopefully you can see, how in blue near Barcelona, that's where the textile and the car industry um, uh, booms. And uh, in the Basque Country, I think there are the 
the bars are brown and they're slightly slanted. Um, there's uh, the metal industry that um, is developed um, also to a less extent in Madrid. So the Spanish miracle, um, in economic terms, was linked to the decline of the countryside. And from this slide, then we go on to this one, migration flows. So we see how, um, how these two overlap, how um, Spain's patterns of industrialization overlap with Spain's migration within Spain. And we see how um, Andalusians, so from the south, there's mass migration, particularly to Barcelona. Um, in fact, over one and a half million Andalusians were living outside their native provinces and over 700,000 in Barcelona alone. Um, I then now want to talk to you about political dissent um, under Franco. After the Spanish Civil War, many political dissidents went into exile and most of them moved to France, Mexico and Argentina. So as I was saying, um, these um, political dissidents might, um, went into exile um, to France, Argentina, Argentina and Mexico. And by the 1950s, Spain's parties of the left gathered in France. The Spanish Communist Party settled in Paris, while the Spanish Socialist Party um, set up its headquarters in Toulouse. So that's southern France. And um, this north and south of France divide truly captures the, um, the divide of the left, um, the, the Spanish left, because even though they were all they were opposed to Francoism and to Franco, there was much um, there was a lot of animosity between these uh, parties of the left, not only um, between them but also within them. Um, so and these dis dis disagreements stemmed from um, blaming blaming each other um, because they'd let the republic down, and so they had um, there was some war guilt. Um, uh, there were strategic differences as well as ideological differences. And one of the things I want to suggest is that French was the Spanish uh, left's language of dissent. And beyond the obvious geographical proximity, some of the reasons why um, French was the opposition's working language were to do with the fact that um, French was the language of diplomacy at the time. It was also the, the foreign language that was taught in schools in Spain until the 1970s education bill was passed, and also, um, as uh, another scholar, Sudir Hazarizing, points out, the appeal the French, uh, French le left writers had on dissent movements world over at the time. Um, something else to point out um, is workers' dissent within this context. Um, the cost of strikes were great under dictatorship which defined strikes as acts of sedition. So um, uh, workers were not allowed to go on strike. Um, they had no right to strike. And so after the Civil War, um, trade unions which existed during the Spanish Republic were replaced by vertical syndicates, as they were called, which meant that um, representatives, well, they were not elected, they were appointed. And um, these vertical syndicates, um, these official unions, failed to solve the labour problems of an increasingly industrial market economy. Um, and in 1956, we see the first important industrial disputes. 
And um, as industrialization grew, so did the industrial proletariat. And so the Spanish Communist Party, from outside, um, got together with Catholic groups in Spain, and uh, they took action and founded the Workers' Commissions in 1965. So that's the picture on the left. You see Comisiones Obreras, that's Workers' Commission. So that's the um, communist um, sister trade union, which then infiltrated um, the vertical syndicates, so the official... Um, the official unions of the Franco regime. The Socialist Party, however, decided against infiltration, so they had a policy of inaction rather than action, um, and uh, they only in the early 70s did the policy really change with a, with a group of young Spanish socialists from within Spain who took over the party and who brought not only the power structures back to the country, but um, they also decide, thought that they, the, the party's program needed to take into account the fact that Spain was um, uh, developing and there were new social and economic realities in the country. And even Catholic priests became worker priests, and they moved into, into working-class suburbs, joined factories and took up manual labour. And in fact, the Catholic Church's move towards dissent um, came around the, the mid-1960s with the Second Vatican Council. Um, in, the in the late 1950s, there's a new batch of students born after the Civil War who reach university. And the Spanish philosopher José Ortega y Gasset died in 1955. And Pío Baroja, perhaps Spain's foremost novelist uh, of his generation, died shortly after. And these, um, uh, these funerals um, were the occasion for a show of liberal dissent. But until the 1950s, political activities within universities were very scarce, um, and political mobilization of students was limited. Um, however, by the 1970s, the student protest had become a mass protest. Police occupied campuses, professors were dismissed, um, students imprisoned. And Marxist subculture dominated Spanish universities. And in Maraval's view, trade union and student dissent peaked at similar times. And to give you an example of how student um, dissent and workers' dissent went together in this um, dictatorship context and in the Cold War context, there's a, um, a living example that comes to my mind, and that's Javier Solana, who came from a well-to-do family. He joined the Socialist Party in his last year of university. He co-organized the University Renovation Week, got suspended, expelled from university, then got a Fulbright scholarship to go to the U.S., and that's because the, US, the U.S.'s Youth Com Committee's exchange program in Spain was designed to include students who were hostile to the Franco regime and who might one day play a role in the country's future. And indeed he did. He was minister um, for over 10 years in the socialist government. He then became secretary general of NATO, and then went on to be the first EU high representative. So um, another thing I want to suggest is that opposition to Franco did not only come from the left. Um, after World War II, there are um, monarchists, who join Don Juan, who, were, who was King Alfonso XIII's heir, uh, and he hoped after World War II to restore 
um, the by the victorious allies, allies as a constitutional monarch, um, so to be a democratic alternative, and he settled in Portugal. So in a way, France and Portugal are centres of Spanish political dissent. Um, Spain first applied for um, European Economic Community membership in 1962. So the Treaty of Rome, when the, the European Economic Community is established, is five years earlier, in 1957. And Spain's application, however, went unanswered. And instead, the European Parliament adopted the Birkelbach Report, which was named after a German Social Democrat um, MP, European MP, which laid down the conditions for membership. Um, and uh, those were only states which guarantee on their territories truly democratic practices and respect for fundamental rights and freedoms can become members of our community. Obviously, that ruled out Spain. Um, so in response to the EEC's um, report and a messy miners' strike in northern Spain, Spanish Christian Democrats, liberals, socialists, monarchists, Catalan and Basque nationalists all came together in Munich um, under Salvador de Madariaga, who's the man on the left. And um, he was, incidentally, the first Spanish chair at Oxford. And also Javier Solana, who I just mentioned, uh, grand uncle. Um, so at the fourth Congress of the European Movement, these um, different political groups decided to put the path behind them and to defend freedom of speech, freedom of association, the right to strike, the ability to organize political parties, and to abolish government censorship. And this was the first time after the Civil War that victors and vanquished got together and discussed national reconciliation. So it is in, within this European framework that dissidents from different ideological backgrounds come together um, and discuss Spain's future. The Communist Party, however, did not attend the Munich um, meeting. It, too, um, took up a European outlook on dissent, and so um, particularly after the Soviet Union's invasion of um, the Czech Republic in 1968. So um, after, this, after the Soviet Union's invasion of Prague, um, the Secretary General of the Spanish Communist Party um, embraced Eurocommunism. The Spanish Communist Party really remained the main bulwark of opposition to the repressive dictatorship for 36 years. Um, there is, however, Paul Hayward writes, an essential point to be made for many in the communist opposition. Membership and activity within the Spanish Communist Party represented less a commitment to communism than to anti-Francoism. So it was not so much that people were... Um, pro-communism, but rather anti-Franco. Um, so again, but this Cold War framework really influences how we think about it. Um, and the full extent of this disparity between being pro-communist or anti-Francoist really uh, plays a role later on once um, once uh, Spain becomes democratic and people need to go vote and they won't necessarily vote communist. So this um, leads me to the novel we're going to discuss today, and um, it, it's a 1966 Juan Marcin novel um, 
called Ultimas Tardes con Teresa. Uh, it's in paper eight of the Spanish um, uh, honors paper. And it very much captures um, themes we were discussing of political dissent, urbanization, class, and social mobility within an industrialized um, or industrializing country. Um, the novel is very much the story, to use Billy Joel and Westlife's song, of an uptown girl who gets with a backstreet guy. Um, and these two um, uh, characters are Teresa and Manuel. And the plot is set in Barcelona from June 1956 to October 1957. The story begins on St. John's Eve, and this is particularly important because in Spain, and indeed other parts of the world, summer traditionally starts on St. John's Eve. Um, bonfires are lit, fireworks are set off, and there's a mood of magic to the night. Manuel um, crashes at St. John's Eve garden party, so he invites himself, uh, in Barcelona's San Gervasio neighbourhood, which is a very well-to-do part of town. He acts cool and seduces a girl called Maruja, but his looks and speech give him away um, to all the other guests. He's, his speech gives him away as um, a southerner, and his looks give him away as poor. Um, in other words, he's a charneo, which is a pejorative term um, to describe southerners who live in Catalonia. So, um, at the party, the hosts demand to know who he is and who he's come with, and Manuel puts up an act, says his name is Ricardo Salvarosa, which is de Salvarosa, which is a very posh-sounding name, um, and tells them uh, that it's Teresa Maruca's friend who has invited him. Teresa's allegedly odd choice of friends makes absolute sense to the party hosts. Um, and in fact, they say he must be her latest political discovery. Um, Manuel carries on, on his liaison with Maruja until he wakes up in her apron-filled room. So he discovers she's not the bourgeois girl he thought she was, but actually a maid. She's Teresa's maid. So he's very disappointed, um, furious in fact, um, they, uh, Teresa, unfortunately, then gets sick. She gets sent to hospital, and um, that's when Teresa and Manuel have the opportunity to come together and spend time together and um, start their romance. For some time, it seems like Teresa and Manuel's interclass romance may work, and yet the novel implies that it is only in this unreal summer setting that considerations of class and birth can be cast aside. Manuel takes up, taking up different names in the book further enhances the unreality of their romance. So um, he doesn't, he calls himself Ricardo, Manuel, the narrator um, constantly refers to him as pijo aparte, which can be something like wannabe. Um, so as the summer um, draws to a close, so do Manuel's hopes of bettering himself. So season and social mobility match up. Um, I thought we could have a look at an excerpt. It's in your handout. Um, the book isn't translated into English, so it's, a loose, it's my loose translation. Um, so um, Teresa received his letters, which she read in university quads, somewhat away from everyone, but not quite enough to notice that she was being observed and envied. 
The intrepid blonde, so um, the author really points out to the fact that she's born blonde and fair when uh, Manuel is brown-haired and has dark skin. Um, so the intrepid blonde and her friends then cooperated in a worker strike attempt, which unfortunately failed. That was the first time students joined a workers' movement, and in the classrooms, the prestige of the four girls in trousers grew with all the merit, dignity, and risk that it entailed. A special edition of Les Temps Modernes on the left was passed around. So uh, Les Temps Modernes is Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir's um, monthly review. So um, what it shows oh, is, is that... Um, French and French intellectuals of the left really grasp many university students' imagination in Spain and um, how their writings were passed around. And uh, also, this is the first time, as Madaval pointed out earlier, um, it's in 1956 when the workers, uh, there's the first workers' um, disputes going on and how university students gang together with them, though they're, they're unsuccessful then. Um, Barcelona, uh, as the setting to the, to the novel, is particularly important, and um, it, there's, uh, there's a sense of recognisability of the setting, but also, um, just like with the characters, the neighbourhoods where they live in are, ve are uh, described in length, and uh, San Gervasio, Teresa's neighborhood, is opposed constantly to uh, Manuel's San Carmelo neighborhood. And so he lives in a run-down um, um, neighborhood with um, migrants from other, other migrants from southern Spain. And uh, so at one point when um, Manuel's walking around his neighborhood and he trips over a container and... Uh, the container says, dry milk donated by the people of the United States. So, again, this shows how um, the Cold War setting influences um, daily lives of people, uh, or these characters, in Juan Marce's novel. And uh, this um, takes me to uh, my last section on uh, historical methods. Um, and that's uh, you have this. You actually have um, a photograph or an image of the the memcon. Um, so basically, this is a the last conversation between um, the last meeting minutes between uh, President Ford of the U.S. and General Franco um, in 1975 in May 1975, when Ford um, visits Spain. So, so we go from this 1950s um, dry milk uh, point to, 19, to, the nine, to 1975 with the end of Francoism, and again, just how important the US um, and Spain's military agreement um, is. So broadly speaking, um, memoranda of conversations um, are in-house reports on high-level meetings. Said differently, memcons are official meeting transcripts. So when um, uh, the heads of state come together, there's a note-taker who takes down 
um, what it is they're saying, so that it's verbatim. The purpose of a memo is to keep track and help officials recall what was said at a high-level meeting. Now, these transcripts are not made available uh, are not available unless there's um, an X number of years have gone by, and then they're made available. Which is also why researchers we all get very excited when they're, they're they are made in, available. And memcons offer very rich and in-depth information. Um, so memcons first get um, written down, uh, handwritten, and then get typed up. So that means there's at least one note-taker per party, um, but that obviously leads me to discuss some of their limitations, because note-takers have their own biases, and sometimes they pay more, um, sometimes they need to multitask. They're advising uh, the head of state they're with, they're note-taking, um, and they're translating as well sometimes. And they also tend to pay more attention to what their boss is saying rather than to what the other um, parties are saying. Um, so the way we can go around, uh, we can work around this is firstly to identify who the note-taker is so we can identify um, his biases. But also um, we can do multi-archival work because there's not just one transcript of a, uh, a meeting. There's also, um, so there's in this case the US one, but also the Spanish one. So we can access them in their different archives. Um, so as I said, um, these are transcripts from Franco and Ford's last meeting, um, and that's about six months prior to Franco's death in November 1975. General Franco did not usually get many visit foreign visitors. In fact, European heads of state had um, not visited him since World War II. Um, U.S. presidents, however, um, President Eisenhower came in 1959, so that's when the stabilization plan gets passed. Um, then in 1970, President Nixon comes to, uh, comes to Spain, and then, well, this one here in 1975, six months before Franco died. Um, the Memcon shows just how much the Uni United States military partnership with Spain meant to both countries, um, and the extent to which Spain contributed to Western security, although, um, so it contributed to Western security, but it was not allowed into NATO uh, because of its uh, non-democratic credentials. So the idea of, con of democratic conditionality is particularly important um, in these um, organ in international organizations post-World War II, Cold War organizations. Um, in their meeting, Franco and Ford also discuss the Portuguese 1974 April Revolution. Um, President Ford voices his concern. Um, Franco, on the other hand, does not sound too fast. He does, however, speak of communist infiltration in several European countries. And it is important to keep this Cold War framework in mind um, because communist dissidents within Spain and the Franco regime's anti-communism um, can be then extrapolated to the international uh, level in Cold War, when we think about Cold War rhetoric. 
So it really resonates with the US's Cold War rhetoric at the time of anti-communism. Um, so these sorts of um, sources of uh, memos can be found in... Um, uh, so this one's from the uh, Ford Presidential Library, but different sources on um, Spanish descent against the Franco regime can be found in um, other archives like the Communist Party's archive, the Socialist Party's, or their trade unions even. Um, so these are the themes for today, development and dissent, and what I'll be discussing um, next week is um, how we go from dissent and development under dictatorship to democracy in Spain. Um, so that those will be the historical questions we'll dis be discussing. Um, the sources we'll be looking at are diplomatic cables in historical research and Carmen Martín Gaites' novel El Cuarto de Atrás. Um, so thank you and I hope to see you next week. No one coughed, so there's no need to talk or discuss about copyright. <laughs>